listening to the late edition, first broadcast on the 20th of January 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the Late Edition, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, an extended look at the inauguration of the 46th President of the United States. All those who supported our campaign, I'm humbled by the faith you've placed in us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. And Joe Biden, before setting about the business of governing in prose, permitted one final flight of campaigning in poetry. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this special programme, we'll reflect on an inauguration day unusual for all sorts of reasons. We'll speak to someone who was there, look at what President Biden does now, and ask one Republican who stood up against Trumpism what becomes of the party. That's all coming up right here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. And welcome to this special Inauguration Day edition of The Late Edition with me, Andrew Muller. A little over four hours ago, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States, Kamala Harris as his Vice President. Any transition between American presidencies is, of course, significant, but this one felt more so than most, perhaps not so much because of the presidency it launched, but because of the presidency it ended. The twice-impeached Donald Trump slunk off to his Florida lair on the final morning of his term, refusing to attend the inauguration of his successor. At least, it might be argued, maintaining the disregard for convention and decorum he had observed during his four years in office. Here is some of what President Biden had to say. This is a great nation. We are good people. And over the centuries, through storm and strife, in peace and in war, we've come so far. But we still have far to go. We'll press forward with speed and urgency, for we have much to do in this winter of peril and significant possibilities. Much to repair, much to restore, much to heal, much to build, and much to gain. Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once in a century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from planet itself. A cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, that we must confront and we will defeat. 
Well, I'm joined first of all by Suzanne Lynch, Washington DC reporter for the Irish Times, who attended the inauguration. Um, Suzanne, the, the mundane but weirdly exciting question first, where were you sitting? Well, I was sitting, I suppose, relatively close to the stage um, on uh, the left, looking up at the at the Capitol balcony where Joe Biden uh, was speaking. So it was journalists, dignitaries like ambassadors, members of Congress and members of the cabinet. So there was quite a bit of celeb spotting going on on my part. Pete Buttigieg, the new transportation secretary, was there. Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, uh, Samantha Power, the new head of the USA, they were all there gathered well ahead of Joe Biden's arrival. Um, and uh, it was quite a kind of display of the, the, the changing of the guard really here in Washington. Uh, except, of course, it wasn't like the usual changing of the guard because the head of the old guard preferred not to be there to see himself changed, if I can pursue that metaphor to absolute exhaustion. Um, that aside, what did they do about the fact that this inauguration was going to have to be different, that they couldn't rely for a sense of occasion on those crowds of hundreds of thousands thronging the mall? Yeah, I think um, it was very effective. What we had was an empty national mall that felt very incongruous uh, and very unsettling in one sense, but instead you had that field of flags, which gave this very striking visual effect of, of thousands of fluttering flags, which were kind of like a symbol of, of fortitude, I suppose, and hope. And that was the backdrop that Joe Biden looked down on as he spoke. Um, now, one couldn't but help notice the, the huge security everywhere. There was heavily National Guard troops everywhere. Um, they still are here in the capital where I'm speaking to you now. So people, those attending, had to arrive by 8 a.m. Some people here were, were here earlier to get through all those layers of security. There were also COVID tests as well. But then once we got in there, people were so distanced, you had your, your specific uh, chair, and then, then we await the arrival of Biden. Um, there was that sense, it was quite a quick-moving inauguration. Biden was, in fact, sworn in a little bit earlier than we thought, uh, just before noon. Um, and we had an array of stars, Lady Gaga, J-Lo, and Garth Brooks, of course, which is probably a nod to uh, some of the Republican supporters. Garth Brooks has himself said that he does vote Republican. Um, but even though we had this array of, of kind of heavy hitters they were all they all had quite a, a contained uh, amount of time so the event moved on on swiftly uh, and then the pence's the vice president mike pence and his wife did attend and they were seen off by kamala harris and doug emoff her husband and then the uh, the presidential entourage left here a short while ago to go to arlington cemetery now significantly they were accompanied there by the former presidents who were in attendance that's barack obama bill clinton and george w bush no donald trump of course because as you say he'd already decided to leave but I think at this stage, Andrew, it, it was a sense that people are starting to move on here. It was kind of a memory Trumpism. And I think people were focused on um, the new beginnings that I think Joe Biden's cabinet and administration and presidency are hoping to represent. Well, another thing that President Trump was absent from was Joe Biden's inaugural address. Biden did not mention him by name. Now, Biden will have known that there is no oratory ever more rigorously and minutely scrutinised and passed than a US presidential inaugural address. So what tone did it strike you that he was trying to hit today? And, and how successfully do you think he did it? 
I think it was it, it was it was a very good speech. I mean, this is somebody who is quite used to and quite experienced in the art of speech making. He, after all, first entered the Senate uh, just behind him today, almost 50 years ago. So he has given countless uh, political speeches in his time, and it's something that I think Joe Biden is good at. Um, and I think we got a re- really captured his his tone, which is a kind of mix of soaring rhetoric and big visions and big ideas and kind of more down-to-earth folksy language where he's connecting with ordinary everyday Americans. So um, I think he also, I mean, I'm just looking at the speech since since I've come in here into the Capitol and, you know, I think it's important to say, like, he, did, he didn't shy away from the troubles facing the nation. He talked about this being one of the most challenging times in American history. And although he didn't mention his predecessor, Donald Trump, he did say, we must reject a culture in which facts are manipulated and even manufactured. So that was obviously a reference to Trump. But then he replaced that with a kind of more optimistic uh, vision. He spoke of this uniquely American characteristic of we need to be restless, bold and optimistic and we must end the civil war, the pits red against blue. So it was very much preaching a message of unity, but also of hope and the idea that America is always an unfinished idea and we need to kind of imagine what we can be as a nation. So um, I think it was a very effective speech and got the right tone in what is, let's face it, been a, been a very difficult and divided uh, few weeks in particular here. It, it was to be expected that Joe Biden would go big on the reconciliation and unity motif. Um, that's just who he is. And that's probably pretty much what anybody in his position would have said today. But I don't know if it struck as forcefully in person as it did on TV, but it struck me as well that there was in parts a real steel to it, the kind of absolute condemnation of, for example, the sentiments that underpinned the rushing of the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. He he sounded very very much like he was that he intended to get even with the people who'd done it and that he didn't have any particular time for whatever they were agitated by. Yes, that's very true. As I say, he didn't shy away from this. He, Within a few seconds, minutes of him speaking, he referred to the events that had unfolded just two weeks to the day uh, before, which was that attack on the Capitol. And he said, you know, just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation. Um, so he he didn't, as I say, shy away from that. And he, you know, willed people to, I suppose, leave that behind them and try and embrace a new kind of unity and a new uh, a, a new challenge. He, as I say, talked about, as he put them, the foes that they face, anger, resentment, extreme, extremism, lawlessness, um, the, the impact of the pandemic. And so, as I say, it was quite a, a powerful speech in that sense, because he's made no bones about the challenges uh, he now faces. And we're expecting him now in the next few hours to start uh, signing executive orders at the Oval Office when he eventually arrives at the White House. So there is very much a sense that he's got a job to do and it's, it's going to be a tough task. Suzanne Lynch in Washington, D.C., thank you for joining us. Joe Biden cannot, of course, claim to be an unknown quantity. He has been a fixture of American national politics for the thick end of half a century. Here is a recap of the story so far. There really is no accounting for the mood swings of the American electorate in U.S. presidential elections. 
In the last half century alone, they have lurched from the fretful liberal Jimmy Carter to the optimistic conservative Ronald Reagan, from the somber patrician George Bush to the breezy small-town charmer Bill Clinton, and thence to another George Bush, this one a swaggering Texan good old boy at pains to project a certain suspicion of fancy pants highfalutin book learning, then to Barack Obama as fancy pants a highfalutin book learning president as had occupied the White House since John Adams, and then to Donald Trump, Obama's polar opposite in absolutely every way imaginable. Build that wall. 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 Arguably for the first time, such an abrupt gear change makes obvious sense. I say that you're a terrible reporter, that's what I say. After four years of President Donald Trump's rage, chaos, division, spite, incompetence, petulance and stupidity, it's not difficult to perceive the appeal of calm, cheerful, equable, affable, experienced, familiar Joe Biden. We choose hope over fear. The United States has chosen to replace a man who knew nothing of politics with a man who has known little else. You remind me of something my dad said. He said, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about your place in the community. It's about respect. It's about being able to say to your kid and look him in the eye and say, everything's going to be okay and mean it. That's what job's about. A decent paying job like the UAW provides. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was born on November 20th, 1942, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Biden's family moved from Pennsylvania to Delaware when he was a child, his father eventually a successful used car salesman. At school and at university, Biden focused on politics and law and was a decent high school and college athlete, playing football for the University of Delaware's unintimidatingly named Fightin' Blue Hens. The offensive line for Delaware will have... He eventually earned his law degree from Syracuse University, but was an undistinguished student and then an undistinguished lawyer. He was, nevertheless, a young man in a hurry. He ran for and won a county council seat in Delaware in 1969 and ambitiously and successfully leveraged that position for a crack at the US Senate in 1972. Biden was regarded as a hopeless long shot, but even amid a presidential election which saw Republican incumbent Richard Nixon win 49 states, Biden narrowly wrested a Senate seat for the Democrats. He was not quite 30. That unlikely triumph was swiftly followed by unimaginable tragedy. A few weeks after his election victory, Biden's wife, Nelia, and one-year-old daughter, Naomi, were killed in a traffic accident. His two sons, Beau and Hunter, were badly injured. Biden was sworn in for his first term at Beau's bedside. In order to take care of his surviving children, Biden developed the habit, which he maintained throughout his 36-year stretch in the Senate, of commuting daily by train 75 minutes each way between Washington, D.C. and Wilmington. He remarried in 1975 to Jill Tracy Jacobs, a teacher. They had a daughter together. Biden made his first run for the US presidency in 1988, an initially promising campaign unravelled after he was busted lifting speech lines from Neil Kinnock, then leader of the UK's Labour Party. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden 
is the, the first clinic in a thousand generations to be able to get the university. Why is Glennis the first woman in her family to ever go to college? No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because there was no platform upon which they could stand. He tried again in 2008, but was always going to struggle for attention in a Democratic primary race dominated by the possibility of the United States' first black president or its first female one. It turned out, however, that there was a role for an ageing white guy with a reassuringly familiar face. Barack Obama selected Biden as his running mate. Now, with Joe Biden at my side, I am confident we can take this... They won, and won again in 2012. Vice President Biden was one of very few occupants of the office who has given any impression of enjoying it. It is traditionally the preserve of thwarted sulkers who plot and scheme against the incumbent or thuggish consiglieres who wrangle and menace on the president's behalf. Biden played it as a cheerleader for the president and the country and seemed altogether at ease with being caricatured as Barack Obama's daffy uncle. You know, Barack and I, we've been through a lot together in these four years. And we learned about one another, a lot about one another. And one of the things I learned about Barack is the enormity of his heart. And I think he learned about me, the depth of my loyalty to him. Biden's decision not to seek the presidency in 2016 is a colossal what-if moment. If he'd beaten Hillary Clinton to the nomination, he might well have had a better chance of beating Donald Trump in the election. He would not have been burdened by Clinton's baggage or the different rules of conduct unfairly imposed upon women. It was notable that Biden felt able during a 2020 presidential debate to speak for many by calling Trump a clown and telling him to shut up, whereas Clinton did not. But the 2015 death of Biden's son Beau, aged 46, had shattered him, and he didn't perceive sufficient ground to stake between Clinton and the other contender, Senator Bernie Sanders. Biden's 2020 tilt initially felt more like a chaotic quest for redemption than a serious undertaking. Not for the first time, he was underestimated by many observers. Now that he has the job he has wanted his whole life, a Herculean task of stable cleaning, or perhaps to update the myth, swamp draining, awaits. The next four years are a challenge, such is the wreckage he inherits, but also an opportunity. Not for President Joe Biden, the curse of following a tough act. And after the last four years, there will be a great many people in the United States and around the world who won't much care what he does, as long as he does it quietly. You are listening to the late edition on Monocle 24. Now, it is quite something to say to someone who has arrived at the end point of a 50-year odyssey. But for President Joe Biden, the hard part, hard part, in fact, starts now. He faces most obviously domestic difficulties in the shape of an untamed pandemic and the associated economic turbulence and the task of reaching out to the world to discover whether America's allies and adversaries alike are willing to write off the last four years as a freakish and 
singular tantrum. Well, I'm joined with more on that by Chris Chermack, Monocle's news editor. Um, Chris, we were talking at the top of the show uh, to Suzanne Lynch, and I asked her where she'd been sitting for the 2020 uh, inauguration, or the 2021 inauguration, I guess, technically. Um, You were at the same event in 2009 when Barack Obama took the oath for the first time. Where were you sitting? Uh, Andrew, I was sitting, I have to say, uh, quite humbling for a young, very uh, junior reporter at the time in the second row, just underneath the balcony where Barack Obama took the oath of office. So it was quite an amazing moment, really. I don't know what, what kind of luck of the draw I got to be able to do that. Um, but, you know, it really, it just, it was a very special time. And so I'm finding myself, of course, reflecting back on that. Uh, while watching Joe Biden today. Well, I, I was at a house party in Stoke Newington, so you, you win there. But I, I, I think you may have drawn the long straw over Suzanne as well, because you got to experience, I guess, what we might think of as a traditional inauguration with all the, the pomp and ceremony and crowds and so on. Um, watching that on TV here in the studio uh, earlier this evening, as we all did, how different did it seem to you? Uh, well, I think I think there were uh, some a few obvious differences that struck me. Uh, I would say one, of course, is just I remember the you know historic significance back in two thousand eight in this being the first African American president in U.S. history. Then, as you say, I just remember looking back and seeing this sea of a crowd of people that, of course, uh, was not possible this time. Perhaps more significantly, in terms of a difference, though, I was listening back to Obama's speech also. Um, in preparation for this, and I noticed just how quickly in, and just a few minutes in, he thanked George W. Bush for his service <laughs> to the nation and for his generosity and cooperation in the transition. Um, yeah, we, we, we didn't hear a lot of that today, <laughs> did we? We did not hear that, and of course there was nobody there to turn to, as Obama did, to thank in that moment. But having said that, I think listening, you know, there were also a lot of similarities. The message was really so similar, I think, between the two leaders in their speeches, both in the fact that they're focusing on crisis uh, back in Obama's day, an economic financial crisis, this time a multitude of crises, the pandemic and the economic crisis, and really focusing on sort of the need to emerge stronger from it. That was a theme of both. And then, of course, also particularly this focus on unity that that Suzanne also talked about, you know, and with, with Obama, what I remember was this was a new message, you know, it was a hopeful message that there are no red or blue states, the United States of America. It was somewhat unique at the time in American history. This time, the message from Biden was quite similar, but there's just a different kind of urgency to it. You know, it's more, it felt more, rather than something new and fresh, it felt just like a reminder of the need for unity at an extraordinarily difficult time for this country. And, you know, Biden does have a different style uh, in doing that, that that shown through, I think, today, this sort of folksy style that he has. You know, he asked those who disagree with him to take the measure of my heart, as he put it. And then we were watching just before he came on air as he, you know, walked walked into the White House. And as he was walking up Pennsylvania Avenue, he sort of ran to the sidelines and he fist bumped a member of the press. And then he ran again a second time to the sidelines to a child that was standing there watching and spoke to him for a little while. So he just has this other sort of style to him, this folksy style 
um, that I think is is kind of what what we need in this in this moment in the country. I mean, unity was obviously actually quite conspicuously the motif of the speech, but in the current context, it is it, is, it would seem at least the very definition of something easier said than done. Um, do you think that the the fact of his Joe Bidenness, if you will, will help that all those qualities over and above anything he might say or do might actually enable him to be a unifying figure, this kind of folksy, affable, uh, frankly, old guy who everybody knows and everybody is familiar with might at this particular peculiar point in American history be the kind of person who can pull that off. Well, I think there is there is definitely an element to that that his his sort of folksy and his outreach uh, style is going to work well in this moment. But I'd actually f- uh, focus on a couple of different things for what was interesting watching what happened in that sense. And that was in the aftermath of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Particularly, I think there's also a realization among Republicans. Um, that they sort of need to engage in that outreach. And so what you also saw after Joe Biden's speech was a lot of Republican senators coming out and sort of uh, welcoming the speech that Joe Biden gave. Uh, And really even people like Kevin McCarthy, sort of a senior member of the House leadership, um, sort of giving a similar speech, basically saying that they were also ready to work with the new administration. So you're seeing a different tone there. And I think one another contrast maybe to Obama, but that goes to the heart of this, Joe Biden was a legislature. He was a member, as as you discussed, of course, in uh, in your summary of him earlier, he was a member of the Senate for so long. He has relationships there. His people are already doing the work in order to try and get laws passed, in order to try and get legislation passed. Over the last few days, he introduced his idea for a $1.9 trillion stimulus package for the economy and uh, for the pandemic. So, yes, on the one hand, it's his folksy side that's important, if you will, for the people of this country, but he's also somebody that really has the relationships to maybe get lawmakers to get over some of their differences. Well, on the subject of passing laws uh, and actually governing and so forth, which is something that he was at pains to stress he was going to start cracking on with straight away. What does he need to do first? He he has his, you know, much scrutinised, much ballyhooed first hundred days coming up. In terms of actually practically getting things done, what, what do his priorities have to be right now? I think his priority really has to be uh, the pandemic uh, and and the economy, uh, and that's why, as I said, his first legislative uh, proposal was this $1.9 trillion stimulus package uh, for the economy. Second, of course, he has said that he wants 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days of his uh, of his time in office. Um, those really are going to be the key priorities, I think, for him that he will be uh, essentially measured upon uh, for these first hundred days. He is, of course, at the same time also going to be seeking to simply roll back elements of the Trump administration, as Suzanne alluded to, a flurry of executive orders that are going to be coming in the next couple of hours, rejoining the WHO, the Paris Climate Accords, ending building of the border wall, ending the travel ban on Muslim-majority countries. Um, But I should say, actually, just also before we came on air, his first signed executive order, a national, a proclamation for a national day 
of unity. Chris Chermack, on that heartwarming note, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Late Edition on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Late Edition with me, Andrew Muller. Now, as we were discussing earlier, President Joe Biden did not mention his predecessor by name in his inaugural address, but Donald Trump will nevertheless loom over the early months of Biden's term. An impeachment trial in the Senate is theoretically due, as will be at some point. Biden's answer to the question of whether he pardons Trump by way of moving on or allows the justice system to follow what seem likely to be plentiful leads. Well, I'm joined now by Bill Crystal, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and commendably prominent never-Trump conservative. Um, Bill, first of all, to that question, the obvious precedent here is, is Ford and Nixon. Should Biden follow the same path? I don't think so, and I don't think he will. I think he will just keep his, his hands off uh, Justice Department determinations in this uh, on the matter of Donald Trump, his family, and everything related to, to, to Trump. And then, of course, here in the U.S., we've got, you know, the states can, can also bring their own prosecutions. So I don't know what Trump's uh, legal future holds, but I think Biden will just stay out of it. Is there, do you think, a greater risk in the long term to not reckoning with Donald Trump uh, to uh, to be seen to be allowing him to have gotten away with something? I think the reckoning, I think it has to be a reckoning. That's why I'm strongly in favor of the Senate uh, going ahead with the impeachment trial, which they will, I think, next week, perhaps even beginning and, and convicting because I think that would and then disqualifying him from further office. That would be a kind of public repudiation of Trump as president. Whether he embezzled money and did all kinds of other things that are arguably illegal is sort of another question. I think a separate question, which our, our judicial system is capable of handling. And I don't. I think he may not actually end up. Uh, he may end up, you know, avoiding punishment in that respect. But I think it's more of a political matter. And the voters barely, but still repudiated uh, Donald Trump in November. Uh, the Democratic Party obviously has uh, has never supported him. But it's really a republic question of will Republican senators see that this is the moment to say whatever their accommodation over the last four years that they need to say no what Trump did, especially at the end, especially after the election, that was unacceptable. The Republican Party, especially at a national level, and we have talked about this before, has been uh, obviously willing to indulge Trump or ignore the worst of his excesses in pursuit of their own agenda since the election and since January the 6th, the riot uh, in Washington especially. We have seen some of those previous enablers distancing themselves, most notably former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Do you take any of that seriously? Are these people who are experiencing some sort of epiphany or are they just heaving Trump under the bus now that he's no longer useful to them? Yeah, more the latter, I think. But that could be serious, too, in the sense that whatever their motives, if the party says, no, no, we're, we're, we're not, we're turning our back to some degree on Trump and Trumpism, we're moving on. We're not just throwing him under the back. We're saying that Biden won the election. We're saying that conspiracy theories are dangerous. We're, we're willing to echo uh, President Biden and what he said about uh, facts and truth and lies in his inaugural speech today. If the party does that, that would be healthy for America. Will they? I don't know. I'm not wildly optimistic. I think any steps in that direction are probably better than none at all. But no, no, I'm, I remain fairly pessimistic about 
the Republican Party uh, uh, liberating itself from the thrall, thrall maybe, maybe not from Trump himself, but from Trumpism. They need not just to say, you know, we're sick of, as you say, we're sick of Donald Trump, we don't need him anymore. They need to say, we went along with things we shouldn't have gone along with, and especially, especially the big lie at the end, which did so much damage. Did you see glimmers of hope for the party's future at all? Maybe not so much in the, the national GOP, but in those those state-level officials who held the line stoutly uh, in the face of extraordinary intimidation uh, from Earth's most powerful individual when he was trying to get them to balk the election results? That was heartening. And there are lots of young people. There's a lot of turnover in politics, as you know, especially now, I think, with Trump leaving, the Republican Party could look different for six or eight years from now, really very different. It will have a different leaders, probably. McConnell's not going to be there forever. Uh, and and so, you know, and various senators, governors will turn over. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I'm not pessimistic over sort of a decade, but I am worried about the next two, four years. And I think the failure to, even now, even today, and McConnell gave a pretty good speech yesterday on the floor of the Senate and sort of rebuked Trump for his uh, J- January 6th behavior. Uh, he hasn't been echoed that much, honestly. And in fact, Lindsey Graham, who's a good weather vane on these matters, said, no, he thinks Trump's still the leader of the party and McConnell shouldn't indulge in all this talk about impeachment and conviction. I think the conviction vote will be important. If we end up with a situation, think of it this way, uh, 60%, 65% of House Republicans voted to overturn the electors. Truly shocking on on the night of January 6th. Uh, 95% of House Republicans voted against impeachment. Uh, And the Senate, on the other hand, on the elector vote, it was the opposite. Almost 43, I think, of 49 Republican senators voted to sustain the election. That shouldn't be a big deal, but it's in in our current context, in the current context of the Republican Party, that's that was good. Let's see where they are on the on the conviction after January 6th. That, I think, would be a sign to if you're a 35 year old thinking of running for office somewhere for Congress or for governor or lieutenant governor or state legislator. And you're you know, you'd like to make your future in politics and you're moderately conservative, free market, American leadership. You feel more comfortable with the Republicans than the Democrats. Do you look up and think this is a party I can be part of? I would say now, based on my own conversations with many people, uh, you think, no, I don't want to make accommodations with Trump and Trumpism and conspiracy theories and QAnon and demagoguery of the kind you have to make, you seem to have to make to be a Republican politician. That could change uh, over the next few weeks, months, years. And it would change a lot faster if Senate Republicans rally to vote for conviction. But if those reasonable conservatives of up and coming generations you're talking about are deterred by where the Republican Party has already got to, is it conceivable that it hasn't bottomed out yet? Because there is also a generation of people who have come up uh, marinated in this bizarro alternative media world, the, the, the kind of thing you were alluding to, this weird soup of conspiracies and paranoia. Um, and, you know, a few of them uh, in November actually got themselves elected to Congress. Is it possible that the Republican Party's flirtation with craziness may have uh, a distance yet to run? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I said to someone today, they said, are you happy? Not really happy. I'm relieved that Trump has peacefully left office. I'm relieved that Biden has assumed the responsibilities of the office and I think done so graciously and, and in a promising way. But I'm not, uh, no, there are plenty of challenges ahead, to say the least, especially on the Republican and conservative side. It may be that that young 35-year-old uh, I mentioned ends up running as a 
Biden Democrat and not he doesn't agree with the left wing of the Democratic Party, but he's willing to go to the Democratic Party. Or maybe we end up with some third party or centrist party, something that hasn't happened much in America, but could conceivably. So, no, no, no. I'm, I, I very much agree that the uh, the future of the Republican Party and of conservatism as a movement very much up in question. Bill Crystal, thank you for joining us. And that is all we have time for. The late edition was produced by Rhys James. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, but we'll have much more on the inauguration on tomorrow's edition of The Globalist, which airs at 7am London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much for listening, playing us out from earlier today, Lady Gaga and the Star Spangled Banner. Stripes and bright stars